This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. sisters in recovery. Welcome back to Worth Recovery. This is a podcast featuring women in sex addiction. I'm Amy. I'm a recovering sexaholic and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. Before we jump quite into our topic today, I wanted to share quickly about a small crisis that has been going on in my life. If this podcast is anything, I want it to be real. I don't want to be fake or put out this facade for you that I am some amazing superwoman recovering addict who doesn't struggle or who has no more problems because that's just not true. So here is my crisis. Are you ready? I dyed my hair. I know. I know. I know. Maybe this maybe crisis is just a really strong word for dyed hair, but hear me out for a second. Okay. For a while now, I've been wondering what it would be like to be a brunette. I've been a blonde all of my life. It's a lighter blonde and it's a natural color. I love being blonde. Not sure if you know this, but adult natural blondes are actually very rare, making up only 2% of the world's population. Crazy, right? I'm sure that that fact will come in handy for you one day. But back to the point here. In about three hours, I went from being blonde to brunette. It's not super dark, but it's darker than I have ever been my entire life. I didn't expect my blonde hair to soak up so much pigment, to be honest, but it did. And looking at the color for the first time in the mirror, I said to myself, out loud, I think, that was a mistake. I, I didn't hate it. It isn't terrible, and I didn't even cry over it, honestly. No tears. But for the next three days, I would double take every time I looked in a mirror, and sometimes I would have to remind myself, and out loud even, oh, that's right, you dyed your hair. <laughs> Everywhere I've gone, people have said really great things about it. How great it looks with my complexion. How much brighter my eyes look with dark hair. No one has said a negative word about it, honestly. Only really great compliments. Yet, for me, even nearly a full week later, every time I look in the mirror, I'm having an identity crisis. That sounds a bit dramatic, but it's true. I hadn't realized how attached I was to my blonde hair. I hadn't realized how much I liked it. I hadn't realized what a part it plays in how I define myself. And now, here I am, trying to define myself as a brunette. And my mind is having a really hard time with it. So much so that I'm really not sure how much longer I'll remain a brunette. Fortunately, this is only hair we are talking about. It grows, it changes, I can color it tomorrow if I want, and I can make it whatever color I want. It changes easily without weeks, months, or even years of trying or going to therapy, right? (laughs) But I think why this has become such a big thing for me is because of the feelings of feeling lost, of losing my identity or who I thought I was. These feelings are so familiar. Since beginning recovery nearly five years ago, I feel like I've been through one continual identity crisis. At first, it was accepting parts of myself that I didn't like. I'm an addict. 
I'm a victim. I'm a predator. I'm a manipulator. I'm a user. I harm other people. I had to really look at these pieces of my life that I had been in denial about and accept them as part of the way that I define myself. Then, as I worked to give up many of my negative behaviors, I had the challenge of defining myself without these behaviors. If I don't act out anymore, then who am I? Am I that sad, lonely woman who lives alone and has too many cats? Am I that cat woman? Uh, no. I don't like cats, so that would never be me, really. But if I didn't act on these addictive patterns I had, who, who would I be? I didn't know how to give it all up or how to define myself when I did. Then I started working through trauma and I had to learn to give up a whole lot more things like anger, resentment, fear, jealousy. Who was I if I gave all those things up? I felt like I was slowly giving away everything that makes me, me. I remember many times asking myself, who am I? What am I doing with my life? I probably could fill an entire journal with that question. A number of months ago, I was discussing this with my current therapist, and she had some insightful comments. She said that when she started working with addicts, the thing that she was most unprepared for was the identity crisis that addicts go through in recovery. (laughs) I can relate to that. For five years, living in recovery has put me in this constant state of redefining who I am. As I give up one thing and add another, I have to look at it. As I work through trauma and let it go and don't allow it to hold me captive anymore, I have to redefine who I am. As I work through the anger or fear and move on in faith, I feel like I am constantly having to redefine myself just a little bit. And sometimes I felt the shifting was so rapid that I was in free fall with no idea on what to grab to help me define who I was or what I wanted to be even. In those states, I would always go back to the basics. I'm tall. I'm six foot tall. I'm blonde. I have naturally curly hair. And I would build from there, kind of reciting the truths that I know about myself and the things that I want. I'm a survivor. I'm in recovery. I can change. But with my die job last week, one of those anchor truths has been disrupted. For the time being, I'm not blonde. Even a week later, I have moments where I forget I'm not blonde. And I look in the mirror and I do a double take, trying to figure out what is going on. Now, I'm, I'm going to be okay. I don't want you to worry about me. This is just hair we are discussing, right? And I'm not trying to put too much pressure on hair color, for sure. In the big picture of life, hair is just temporary. I'm not trying to make a big deal about this. But... If you're going through an identity crisis, if you've gone through many of them as you've been trudging the road of happy destiny, I want you to know you're not alone. If you're struggling to define who you are with or without your addiction, you're not alone. I believe living in recovery requires us to take out the beliefs we hold about ourselves and examine them. We take out each truth we use to define ourselves and we look at it, we poke it, we prod it, we decide if this is what we really want to use to define ourselves and then we keep what we want and we let the rest go. It's not an easy process by any means and sometimes we don't know how important something is until we change it, like blonde hair. And sometimes we learn that the way we were defining ourselves was actually limiting our growth and our recovery. My point is this. 
Recovery requires that we be willing to challenge the way we define ourselves. It requires us to be more intentional about our identity. And maybe we try a few things on and we decide we don't like them, like brown hair. And maybe we try a few things on and have that feeling of peace that comes from authenticity. And if we keep working our recovery program, if we keep moving forward, we will eventually figure it all out. I promise you that. You will eventually figure it out. I'll let you know what I decide to do with my hair color. I'm committed to trying this for at least six weeks. But then, you know what? Who knows? I'll probably go back to blonde, but we'll see when the time gets there. Maybe this will grow on me. Okay, today. Today is episode 27, and this is a continuation of our deep dive into the 12 steps of recovery. We're currently discussing step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. In our first episode about step three, that was episode 25, we discussed being a decision maker. We are decision makers in our lives. Step three requires us to take responsibility for both our actions and our inactions. I challenged you last time to take an inventory of the actions and inactions in your life to become a decision maker. Like I said then, step three requires us to make a decision. This decision is that we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Reminder that when I talk about God, I'm talking about the higher power of your own understanding and definition. I fully recognize that what I call God and how I define God will be different from how you define God. And that is totally okay. We are going to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as you understand God. I told you last time, this step isn't for wimps. And I stand by that. We are going to turn over our will and our life. This is kind of another identity crisis of sorts. I don't know about you, but I like my will. I like my life. I like them a lot. I have ideas and hopes and dreams and intentions. I have things I want to accomplish in my life. I have things I want to have happen, things I want to my life to be. I have aims and goals and I work hard to make things happen in my life. I also have a will and things that I want to have happen for other people, both good and bad things because I'm being honest here. I have a will for others. I want others Oh, I want other people's lives to work out as well. I want them to be happy or to be successful, to have what they need. I want their dreams to come true. I want them to make their life what they want it to be. Or, again, because I'm being honest here, I want their lives to be miserable. Well, okay, maybe not miserable per se, but I, I want justice. I want them to maybe suffer a little bit for the unkind, unacceptable things that they have done. My will for their lives is that they understand the damage that they have caused other people and suffer with that. I know, it's not very kind to loving or forgiving. I'm working on it, I promise, but that is how I feel sometimes. Step three says, I must turn this will, both for me and for others, over to God. Why? Why do I have to turn this over? Is having a will, a desire for things to happen so bad? Aren't we supposed to have dreams and desires? Aren't we told all the time that we must be driven, we must have passion, we must find the calling for our lives? 
We're told all the time by the world that we can make things happen in our lives. We're told that we can, on self-will alone, make our lives what we want them to be. That is what society and social media would tell us. That is what my quote board on Pinterest tells me for sure. (laughs) It tells me that if I don't want to feel a certain way, just wake up and change it. It tells me that I am in charge of my destiny. It tells me to dream big and to be driven. For me personally, I have a hard time turning my will over to anyone or anything. I don't want to be controlled. I don't want someone making decisions for me. I want to make my own decisions. I had done that all my life. I had been incredibly self-driven and independent. And I didn't necessarily want someone else who could call the shots or pull the strings or who would decide anything or everything for me. But by the time I had worked step two and got to step three, I had to really take a hard look at where my own self-will had gotten me in my life. I hadn't been willing to let someone else in, but yet my own best thinking, my very best reasoning had landed me here in a 12-step fellowship with an addiction in a therapist's office. (laughs) It is true what they say about step two. Knowledge never gave us power. Working step two, exploring my insanity, helped me see the compulsive approach I had to almost everything in my life. My self-will, acting on my own desires, hadn't gotten me where I wanted to go. I had dreams and hopes and desires, but I wasn't accomplishing them, and I wasn't making them work in my life. I love the way it is described by the Narcotics Anonymous NA, the Step Guidebook. P.S., I love these books by N.A. They're new to me and I am totally eating them up. But quote, step three is critical because we've acted on self-will for so long, abusing our right to make choices and decisions. So what exactly is self-will? Sometimes it's total withdrawal and isolation. We end up living a very lonely and self-absorbed existence. Sometimes self-will causes us to act to the exclusion of any considerations other than what we want. We ignore the needs and feelings of others. We barrel through, stampeding over anyone who questions our right to do whatever we want. We become tornadoes, whipping through the lives of family, friends, and even strangers, totally unconscious of the path of destruction we have left behind. If circumstances aren't to our liking, we try to change them by any means necessary to achieve our aims. We try to get our way at all costs. We are so busy aggressively pursuing our impulses that we completely lose touch with our conscience and with a higher power. Close quote. I can relate to this. My self-will sometimes kept me trapped at home, unable to interact with others. My self-will many times hurt other people as I acted only on my own impulses and desires. My self-will caused damage to relationships as I tried to control other people and make their decisions for them. Acting on self-will, I acted out in a way contrary to my own core values. I had lost touch with my conscious and with my higher power. Okay, so my self-will hadn't really served me well. My own thinking wasn't working. My personal insanity was preventing me from accomplishing the positive things I wanted from life. I would and can concede on that point. But for this educated, insightful, astute, independent, stubborn, and prideful woman, I still had doubts. Yes, what I was doing wasn't working, but I needed to just tweak things a little bit, right? I wanted just more knowledge, but I still wanted to very much be in control. 
There was a battle going on for me. I realized what I was doing wasn't working, but I also wanted to be in charge of changing it. I had this fear that by turning my will and my life over, I would lose myself. I had this fear that I would turn into something I didn't want to be. I had this fear that God would want me to do things I didn't want to, that he would ask me to sacrifice everything I am to take care of what he needed from me. Based on my experience with other powerful people in my life, I felt like I would lose myself in serving the needs of my higher power. I was afraid that if I turned it all over, everything, my will, my life, that there really wouldn't be anything left of me. (laughs) Talk about an identity crisis. Who was I going to be if I gave up my own self-will? I wasn't necessarily happy with who I was, but I didn't want someone else deciding without me who I was going to be. And yet, I had worked steps one and two. I knew that I was powerless, that my life was unmanageable. There was no doubting that. I knew that I was insane. And I also knew that the only way for any of it to change was for me to willingly hand myself over. I knew I needed to give up my self-will. The 12 and 12 book from AA describes it this way on page 34, quote, Step three calls for affirmative action, for it is only by action that we can cut away the self-will which has always blocked the entry of God or a higher power into our lives. Faith to be sure is necessary, but faith alone can avail us nothing. We can have faith yet keep God out of our lives. Close quote. That described me perfectly. I had faith, I had faith in a higher power, but I was still keeping that higher power at arm's distance. I was afraid that what would be asked of me would be too much, that it would require too much sacrifice, that I wouldn't be able to measure up, and that I wouldn't like who I was to become. I had doubts, for sure. I had a lot of doubts. I love what the SAA Green Book says on page 28 about doubts. Quote, when we first encounter this step, we may have many questions and doubts. What does it mean to turn over our will in our lives? We can think of our will as our plans and intentions, what we want to do with our lives. We can think of our lives as the carrying out of these intentions, the full scope of everything we actually do, think, and say. We turn our will and our lives over to the care of God because our self-directed thoughts and actions have so often led us to acting out negative consequences and despair. In step three, we let a power greater than ourselves help guide our daily decisions, opening ourselves to the possibility that we may not know what is best for us and letting go of the belief in our own power to manage our lives. Close quote. I love the description here about letting God in to guide our daily decisions, not make them for us, but guide them, ask for help. And I love the idea of opening ourselves to the possibility that we may not know what is best for us and letting go of the belief in our own power to manage our lives. That is the heart of step three, the battle of wills. Step one and step two really helped us see that being in control of our lives hadn't really worked out the way we wanted. Step three helps us see that we need help. We need a power greater than ourselves who has a bigger vision than we do, who sees more of the world, who understands other people's thoughts and intentions. We need the care of God in our lives. Going back to the NA step guide, it explains it this way, quote, 
It is significant that this step suggests we turn our will and our lives over to the care of the God of our understanding. These words are particularly important. By working the third step, we are allowing someone or something to care for us, not control us or conduct our lives for us. This step does not suggest that we become mindless robots with no ability to live our own lives, nor does it allow those of us who find such irresponsibility attractive to indulge such an urge. Instead, we are making a simple decision to change direction, to stop rebelling at the natural and logical flow of the events in our lives, to stop wearing ourselves out trying to make everything happen as if we were in charge of the world. We are accepting that a power greater than ourselves will do a better job of caring for our will and our lives than we have. Close quote. Giving up my will doesn't make me a mindless robot because I'm not giving up my will to some mysterious power or to some other addict to control. I'm giving up my will to the care of the God of my understanding. These words are significant, the care of God. This step asks me to turn my will over to the care of God. If I've done my homework in step two, and started to really define a higher power of my understanding that works for me, this step is my first concrete evidence that I am going to try and trust my higher power. I love the way the NA book describes it. I make a simple decision to change direction and to stop trying to be in charge of the world. I accept that a power greater than myself will do a better job of caring for me and the world than I ever had for myself. What this step really asks me to do is simply change direction and accept help to live in consultation. These are things I can do. I can change direction and I can ask for and accept help. These weren't things that I was used to doing for sure. But these were things I learned how to do in working step three. This is where we're going to pick up next time. Changing direction and asking for and accepting help. Trusting in the care of God. How do we do that? What is the care of God? And how do we learn to trust that? Things will happen in our lives. And how do we learn to trust that God will care for us no matter what happens? This is easy and hard all at the same time. I know that from my personal experience, I've felt both ways about that. That sometimes it was very simple to do and other times it challenged everything that I have. And I'm excited to share some of those experiences with you in the next time in episode 29 as we continue this deep dive into step three. Before we close today, though, I want to remind you of the new group coaching programs now offered by Worth Recovery. This new program, it's called Igniting Recovery, is a four-week or 28-day intensive group coaching program designed to help you lay the foundation of your recovery. It is great for those of you that are new to recovery and for those of you that even have been in recovery a while and need a tune-up. Every day has a specific topic that you will explore and learn about, complete an activity to apply it to your life, and then share with the group what's going on. It's going to require about 60 minutes of work a day. Like I said, it's intensive. There are also weekly webinars and Q&A sessions that you get to be a part of. We're only offering 10 spots for this because I want the group to really get to know each other and help support each other. I'm super excited about it. You can find all the details on the website, worthrecovery.com. I really hope that you'll join us. As always, ladies, 
I hope you remember that no matter what is going on in your life today, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel in this very moment, no matter how much you want to control your own will and your own life or the will and the lives of others, I know that you are worth recovery, 100% worth it. I know that. Keep up this fight. I think about you. I pray for you. I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.